Hello and welcome to Room Escape Divas. This week we are joined by Dr. Linda Carson uh, from the University of Waterloo and we are going to talk about team building. Hello and welcome, Linda. I should have positioned this mic so I'm looking at you. So that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) And then Manda in the meantime is going to ask all sorts of fun questions. Hi, so, it's a pleasure to be here. Bring it on, Manda. Right. So as you're saying, you teach at the University of Waterloo, but there's all sorts of other places you teach that I couldn't fit into the intro. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I take interdisciplinarity seriously. That's what I do. <laughs> and for my sins, I teach at the University of Waterloo. My home base is in the fine art department, but I also teach in psychology. From time to time, I teach communication there. And I teach at the Stratford School, which is a campus of the University of Waterloo focused on interaction design and business. And that's where I teach a graduate program on working in teams. That's part of what brought us together for this conversation. Yes. (laughs) It was super exciting because Linda got a hold of me. I think it was over Twitter, or was it just on email? It started on Twitter. It was started. It started on Twitter, and I can't even remember how it started on Twitter. Was I just tweeting you because I'm a, I'm just <laughs> harassing <Random>? people? <laughs> that, that fits you the make it sound like you were drunk on Twitter one day. <laughs> <laughs> not that that ever happens. Never happens. Um, I'm not judging you there. I'm talking entirely about Twitter. No, I put a call out on Twitter because I'm really interested in escape rooms and started looking at ways to play with the idea of escape rooms around teaching. Hmm. I use them in my graduate course in building in teams. And I, let's say I use a virtual bit of escape room in my psych course. And I have a master plan about a course I teach in color theory, but I have never done an escape room. Oh. I know this is a dangerous space in which to admit that. It's a safe space here, but okay. we'll see what the comments say. <laughs> I, I'm really interested in the prospect of figuring out how to do escape rooms that support team building mm-hmm. and how to make escape rooms better by incorporating good uh, team building into the design of the escape room. So I put out a general call on Twitter to people I knew saying, who knows someone who knows something about escape rooms? <laughs> And I don't think we got more than two degrees of separation away before somebody connected me to Errol. Oh, really? I didn't just see that tweet? Because I, I thought I may Fail have just Errol. seen... Because I, I do watch every instance of the word escape room or room escape or escape rooms on Twitter, just because I do. And so I, I didn't know if I contacted you first or if you contacted me first. Regardless... We got in touch, and then we decided to get together at a Swiss chalet, yep. because I like, I usually have to argue with man pans on this, or where to go to eat, because I always say Swiss chalet, and it's a great place to go, because there's nobody there. I don't there. argue on okay, it. Okay, okay. Maybe and then... the first time I did it, like, Swiss chalet, really? They're coming into Toronto, where there's all this exciting food, and it's like, we'd settle on Swiss chalet, and, but... And, and it's true, though. It's, it's usually empty, and you can get food quickly, and... It's very quiet, so... <laughs> and nobody glares at you if you monopolize a table for the shocking number of hours. We, <laughs> we sat there for like three Although, or four hours? I think for enthusiasts, it's not that shocking. Because okay. I have... We have sat in a coffee shop for five, six hours. Yeah, we were together for four hours, I think. Was it three or four hours? Three or four hours, Could yeah. have gone longer, except I had to get home. And it was... And the reason we wanted Linda on was because we were all talking about design. We were talking about escape room design, puzzle design, and anything 
we brought up or anything she brought up, a lot of a lot of the topics we talked about all meshed. And the great thing about Linda is because she has this wonderful academic background she had terms for everything we used because we would say oh you know that thing you do in a room and it was a horrible you know it was great and so it it was and she had a lot of insight and a lot of background and and we wanted to have and her she can't on-site. possibly live up to this introduction now so <laughs> you will it'll be wonderful okay man pants take us away i gotta fix my mic yeah so the one of the main reasons you mentioned that you teach a course on team building and team building is something that is really like a lot of escape rooms want to have that uh, aspect in their rooms because they can get corporate bookings in. Well, that's not that they want it. They tout it without having it or not. They'll just say this is perfect for team building and they don't really know. They'll just say that. (laughs) Right. It's just also like saying, true, you know, yeah. the, the number one escape room in the city. They'll say that. Or too. the biggest room. Or the, big, or the biggest yeah. room. But yeah, yeah, like that's that's one of the key terms that escape rooms will use is like great for team building. In terms of like your course in general, you actually have them build an escape room, correct? You're saying? I do. Yeah. I do. A lot of things are touted as being great for team building <laughs> that are really hostage scenarios, <laughs> not team building. <laughs> They're put a bunch of people in a room and make them do a bunch of stuff together under the misconception that forced closeness will build a team. If these people have been working together in cubicle farms for months and months and haven't already bonded through forced closeness, I'm not sure how taking them someplace where they can throw axes or climb ropes (laughs) or do trust falls is suddenly going to transform them. And escape rooms are more of the same. So having gotten my corporate team building complaint out of the way, (laughs) I teach a course in the graduate program at the Stratford campus called the Masters of Digital Experience Innovation. And in their very first term, they reluctantly take a mandatory course on working in teams. (laughs) After people graduate, and this is not all due to me, I haven't been teaching this course forever, but after people graduate, when they contact the university later, and say, Here, of all the things we did, they always point to the course I'm working in teams as having been central to their professional success. Mm-hmm. So we know team building's critical to people thriving and working in groups. We know mm-hmm. there are lots of ways for teams to fall apart. <laughs> and I suspect you get a front row seat on that a lot in escape rooms. So here are a couple of the things that I think right away are critical. And if, if, I don't want to wish ill on this building, but if the building gets struck by lightning five minutes from now, here's the one thing I want to make sure that I say. Projects don't need teams unless those projects call for a lot of interdependence of the people who are working on the project. The tasks that people are doing are interdependent, then teams matter. Otherwise, you might as well be an assembly line. I hand something off to Errol, he hands it off to Ruby, and so on and so forth. Interdependent tasks are when you need to be good at collaborating, at communicating, at doing all the things that are crucial to making a team succeed. So what you're seeing in escape rooms, bet you 20 bucks, (laughs) that isn't building teams, is a set of essentially independent tasks or assembly line tasks that aren't interdependent. It's the interdependence that is the challenging part for working on teams. 
the only part that really takes complicated project management, coordination, communication, and everything else is just, I'll do my thing and I'll hand off to the next person in the line. We figured that out with manufacturing cars for Henry Ford, (laughs) which is not a team dependent experience. So can, can you can you give us an example of something you said you you made your students create a, an experience right so what would be an example of a team based building kind of activity that they would have to make a successful one <laughs> a successful one yes well let me say first they don't necessarily nail it right <laughs> Some people have done some really terrific things in this assignment. The assignment is that having spent a term learning different things about how to successfully work in teams, I ask them to intentionally design a pop-up escape room that will particularly focus on rewarding people for working successfully in teams. And that gives a whole bunch of people who are really in a design program themselves a chance to think about what kinds of escape room puzzles and experiences they could create that that reward, that demand working in teams. What I like is even as I'm saying this, you guys can't tell this over the podcast, but around the room, everyone started looking at the ceiling. That way you do in cartoons when you're looking for the light bulb over your head, everybody started trying to think of what this might be. So the kinds of things that don't reward working in teams that people typically do is where you need to just throw a lot of people at stuff. I, I know who's going to roll their eyes when I say this. I saw something in the most recent round where they had a whole stack of books and there was something in one of the books. Everybody rolled their eyes. Look at that. Mike hates books. <laughs> Libraries are his bane in life. And- Yes. Okay, okay, let's stop with that. I have enough librarians Sorry, libraries. getting... <laughs> when there's a library in an escape room and we have to do an intense amount of searching through books, Mike's, Mike hates it. Yeah. And, I'd, and I'd like to say Mike is a man of good judgment because this was a thing that failed in this escape room in multiple ways. I know you asked me for successes. I'm going to start. With... Oh, no, fail. Oh, no. We, we love fail. failures. We yes. love failures. <laughs> so this is a student group with zero budget one room in which to build this thing. So they've done the obvious thing to get their books. They've gone and bought a couple of yards of of used paperback books at some used bookstore. And people kept finding clues that weren't clues. Mm -hmm. People kept finding ways that the top edges of the pages had been marked when the books were (laughs) discounted or discarded from the library. People were finding bookmarks that had been left there by a user of, of decades past. So not only was it a tiresome not particularly team-needed task of plowing through all these books. I'm making gestures with my hands here. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm, this is me giving live action play-by-play for the listeners. I'm making wide gestures with my hands, which could, could either be... sports be... commentators, too. Yes. And Linda spreads her hands out to indicate the wide array of books that they've searched through. Or perhaps the size of the fish that got away. <laughs> you don't need a team to go through all those books, except for divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a task that's essentially divide and conquer, that doesn't rely on a team. And it certainly doesn't build a team except in the yay raw, we all got through it. Go run a 5k. If all you (laughs) yay raw, we all got through it. Things that people do that do seem to be interdependent tasks. And that's our keyword interdependent tasks. 
puzzles that have to be solved that require pooling knowledge. So I I saw one where they had uh, cut out paper pieces that needed to be assembled, uh, and they were in a weird kind of bubble font that didn't really look like letters. And you've got a bunch of people looking at these shapes as they come together to try and figure out what the the thing that turns out to be a word might be. But once you've got the word, which is Oman, which is a country, what do we do with that? And there's a room full of people pooling what they know, not just in the sense of who knows something about this. We've got a bunch of people we could poll, but putting together, we solve this puzzle piece, you solve that puzzle piece, I solve this one over here. And there's a way that those all go together. And if we pool our findings and our knowledge, we will fingers crossed, come across the answer. But that pooling of activities, that pooling of knowledge is the first piece you need for interdependence, especially if there's something, I, I don't want to say repetitive, but iterative about it, where there's a refinement that's need needed. But the only way you're going to get those refinements and extra information is with input from other people. So I think that's short answer, input from other people, mm-hmm. not in the exhaustive sense we will all look at 10 books and somehow find it. Would you say then, like when you do a search through books, anybody could do that? You could get, you know, the same number of automatons getting together and they would happily do a brute force on all the books and find it. Whereas if you have a bunch of people trying to solve a puzzle and if each person, because based on their experience or based on their outlook or based on their knowledge, they will be able to contribute unique things and assets that is, uh, well, unique to them. Something like that? Uh, you said magic words there for me. Yay! <laughs> and that was brute force. Mm. Whatever the opposite of a brute force mm. uh, shaped problem is, is definitely it. The examples that are coming to my mind right now aren't things my students have done. Let me sketch a couple of things <laughs> I did to my students <laughs> instead. <laughs> They are students. They're learning. (laughs) And well, and they've done some really clever things, but they've they've done a whole bunch of things, some of which were really clever. I have a higher hit rate of clever. That's why I get to be at the front of the room. (laughs) Again, I can't possibly live up to what I've just said. I have a higher hit rate of clever. I love it. An activity I did with them early on at the very beginning of the of the term to help them become better at working in teams before they'd even taken the course is that I arbitrarily put them into small teams and sent them away with a time limit to draw a map of the world. Now, unless you hit it lucky and there is a total geography nerd on your team who has not only memorized the world, but has practiced drawing it. This is a program that has a lot of international students from various places around the world. So now we've got something where there's somebody who gets what's going on in the South Pacific. And there's a whole bunch of people who at best could do a set of dots and hope that they manage to get Indonesia somehow. There's a set of people who have a good idea what's going on in Eastern Europe. And you desperately hope you've got some of them on your team before you get to all of the Istan (laughs) countries. Map of the world can't be done solo. Mm -hmm. And it's, as you say, it's not a brute force task. It's 
what what do you know about the world? Wait, there's something really wonky going on here about our South America. Anybody ever do a year abroad in Peru? Help us fix this. I do remember you telling us this story uh, during Swiss Chalet, which was really cool. <laughs> but you had some aspects of where some of the students got it really wrong and not and didn't utilize their team. If you could tell us that. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> The map of the world example is a simple one to imagine. If somebody takes the whiteboard marker and takes over the whiteboard and just starts delivering their mastery of their part of the world and never draws anybody out to learn what they know, Mm -hmm. then the only people you hear from are the people like me, the loudest, fastest, firstest into the conversations. (laughs) That'd be man pans and the divas. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Which means that there are people in the room who are new to the group, who are new to the country, who are introverted by nature, who are feeling a little a little tired that day, who don't immediately leap forward and volunteer what they know, and you miss them. So part of what we, we certainly look at and practice in this course I'm working in teams is teaching the extroverts like me to slow down and shut up from time to time, and how to listen for nonverbal signals from people that they might have a contribution to make. Strategies for running meetings and having conversations to support that. But also to give the people who are new to a group, who are introverted by nature, or whose cultural norms suggest that they sit back politely in a conversation, who might never be heard from, to first have permission and, in fact, have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to mandate for the stuff you know, to speak up for the stuff you know. And if you don't, all of Asia ends up being a little blob smaller than than Greenland for some reason. And that seems inappropriate geographically to me. But I saw the very same thing happen on other team projects. I saw a team do an entire project on a video without ever discovering that one of their teammates had an entire undergraduate degree on animation and professionally produced animated films on her resume. Oh, dear. (laughs) It didn't come up, and she didn't advocate for it, and the blame must be shared. But one of the ways that you fix that is by calling it out and saying... Don't do this next time. So you mentioned, um, you know, like teaching the extroverts to just, yeah, to to hold re- back, to hold back, to just <laughs> slow down and maybe ask somebody else. But do you find that's easier to do than, say, the reverse situation, which is to teach the introverts? And I'm speaking as an extreme in- introvert myself, teaching the introverts to volunteer that information and to and to leap forward do you find that one is a bit tougher to do or is it it's a lot tougher Mm -hmm. i I would say fundamentally impossible and maybe not even ethical (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 i can see that (laughs) what i try to do is inform people make sure that in this case students but everyone who's involved in a team i do i teach a, a bit about this kind of thing in corporate settings as well Make sure that people know they have a responsibility 
if you're not actually speaking up and contributing to a team, you're you're dead weight, you're redundant. The team is going to get there with or without you. And now it really depends on how hard it is to drag you across the finish line. But mostly to give them permission to let them know that in this context, whatever other baggage they're bringing to the table in this context, for this project, for this team, it's important. You are valued. You have things to contribute and it is permissible Mm -hmm. and even valuable for you to speak up. But framing how a team collaborates, how they coordinate, how meetings run is the most important tool there. Give the team a format for running a meeting that makes it possible for somebody quiet to speak up, for somebody new to a team to contribute. Now, if the building were going to get hit by lightning five minutes from now, <laughs> the second most important thing after that, that interdependence of tasks is when you get together, especially with a diverse group, especially with a group where maybe not everyone has known one another for long enough to be able to do handoffs and exchanges of information, start solo when you're generating ideas, when you're trying to solve problems, when you're exchanging information, give everyone a second and a handful of sticky notes or other note paper to just jot down their first main ideas. Now everybody's got a cheat sheet in front of them. You can be sure, even if you run out of time, that you've got a scribbled record of everything everyone needs to say. You can be sure that you've got a way to shut me down. Because sooner or later... Amanda's facilitating this part of the meeting for whatever reason. She's going to be able to say, well, we've heard a fair bit from Linda now. (laughs) Mike, what do you have to to contribute that's maybe a contrast to what Linda said? And we're not putting Mike on the spot when we do that because he's got a list in front of him. He already wrote it down. He's been waiting to get a word in edgewise, or at least he knows he's got a list of things to fall back on, that he had some quiet time at the beginning to put down. When somebody is monopolizing things or when a group runs out of steam, you know, who's got something different in their notes that we could that we could go to for a while and spend some time in a different direction. Start solo, sticky notes. You've got a way to get the best out of everybody and an agreed on convention around the table for how you're going to do that. Mm. Now bring on the lightning. <laughs> Yeah, I guess one of the escape room equivalents to that would be when we're, like, when we start a room, we all go off, do our own thing. And if we're ever stuck, that's when we start handing puzzles to each other and saying, well, what perspective can you bring on that puzzle? Like, I'm stuck, but maybe you can can shed some light on it. A common mistake of new people in escape rooms is that they become adamant that they're going to solve this puzzle. I already... I've already invested five minutes of my time. I'm going to solve this. Nobody else can touch this. Whereas now, it's like, okay, I spent five minutes on this. Somebody else look at this. I don't, I don't care anymore. <laughs> well, that's my... <laughs> I just don't want to look at it anymore. But we usually find that's much better because now that we've exhausted us and maybe got into a rut, I won't even tell them what I think the solution is because I don't want to send them in the wrong direction. There's our third lightning strike moment. There we go. <laughs> If five minutes from now, we were going <laughs> to interdependent tasks, start solo, third on the list. You just described a psychological phenomenon called priming. priming. If you tell me the approach you took to solving that problem, mm. I'm already primed to try and tackle it the same way. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. So when you said, I don't even tell them how I was approaching it, that's so the right answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> you want to hand it over and make sure that you've got advantage of the fact that Ruby's first take on it is completely different from yours. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, if what you're doing was going to work, it would have worked three minutes oh, yeah. ago. She's going to bring something different in. You've got another chance at it, provided you don't prime her with that. Now, that's one of the other benefits of Start Solo is instead of us all in a group getting stuck on the first thing that somebody blurts out, mm-hmm. everybody does their blurting in little scribble pieces of paper, and we've got lots of different starting points. That's another reason why I don't pay attention to what you guys do. Yeah. Oh, is that why? Yeah. yeah. No, is that the reason? Yeah, it is. It actually is the reason, because I don't want to, in case you get stuck... I don't want to get stuck in the same thing, and so and I and for the most part, you guys solve everything really quickly. So, no, no, yeah. but it is funny because I do. I like I've, I've stopped doing it now, but when I'm stuck on a puzzle, Nerol comes over and he was like, "Oh, can I help?" Yeah, okay. So this is where I started. He's like, "Shut up, hang on." <laughs> <laughs> and on the on the surface, team building wise, it sounds like he's dismissing me, but no, it's not. It's because he wants to like have his own fresh set of eyes. Yeah. On yeah, it's very much about fresh eyes, about beginner's eye and coming to something as if this is the first time anyone's seen it. There definitely comes a point, and this is more for those brute force tasks. If we were trying to do that scan a whole bunch of books, I'm making the big wide hand gesture yeah. at the library again, uh, scan a whole bunch of books task. You would definitely say, no, I started from the left. How about if you start from the right Mm -hmm. and make sure that you don't go over the same Mm -hmm. ground again. But when you're trying to come up with solutions, generate ideas, you want to make sure you've got a chance to get that fresh set of eyes. I think it was funny in the last puzzle we were working on, this was during the the beta test of the card game we were doing, if you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and Mike was just ignoring us all. While we were all talking, Mike didn't say a word and then just started solving it and just ignored us. <laughs> and then we looked at him. Oh, you solved it. Oh, okay, that's great. <laughs> we were arguing, too. <laughs> but, but then again, he also had fresh eyes to it and then just decided to go ahead and solve it. So I woke up from a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you find this, but yeah, that was one thing. Sometimes like when everybody's talking in the room, it's almost better to not try and make yourself or selves heard just to just do the task and then present the solution. I don't know, but I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah. But successful and failed communication are big, big issues in all teams. Right. And if everybody's talking and arguing all at once, communication is completely failed. And <laughs> Somebody opting out of that and saying, let's see if I can make good use of this time while they finish up whatever their battle royale is. <laughs> good use of time. Yeah. Also, good use of, of the, the people who don't like fighting. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be mad pants. I really don't no, like fighting. Like <laughs> I shut, my brain shuts down when people start fighting in the room. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then Errol's like, solve this math. I'm like, can't. Everyone's so angry. What? We don't get angry in a room. No, no, no. But there's been instances. And that's Mike and I are fighting I can't, for I can't fun. Name names. Oh, <laughs> so. oh, drama. Drama. Well, it's it's also there surely about what what triggers you about that because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily all things about someone fighting, but. Is it raised voices? Is it raised voices on particular issues? Is it seething 
suppressed yeah. anger. <laughs> right. And that's just emotionally distressing. And to right. different people, emotionally distressing in different amounts. There you go. You are no longer as clever and useful as you were five minutes ago. Right. <laughs> and whoever the people are who are fighting, yeah. who may get off on drama for all we know. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> we heard getting off on drama and we all look towards Errol. <laughs> and he's laughing because he knows him. He knows he it's knows true. It's true. <laughs> There's subtext here I don't even know about. <laughs> Errol likes drama and gossip. Well, I, I only like drama if I'm not involved in it. Then, then I could just watch it from afar. <laughs> no, you watch it pretty up close. Oh, up close. I do. As long as I'm not involved, though, then we're all good. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Just in the escape room enthusiast world, there's there's drama. Yeah. It's drama yeah. in every community. Yeah. <laughs> so part of part of what uh, I I'm really looking forward to in this conversation is the flip side of it because I want to ask you guys a couple of questions about what actually goes on in escape rooms and how mm. how it works mm-hmm. because there are things that I've observed, things that I've heard about, and there's a difference I would imagine especially in the context of working in teams, between going into an escape room scenario with a team of people you play with mm-hmm. yep. and going into an escape room scenario with a team of people you know but don't play with mm-hmm. and going into an escape room <laughs> scenario, oh, you should see them all nodding bitterly right now, going into an escape room scenario with a bunch of randoms. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. definitely totally. Difference. Everything about working in teams predicts how this is going to go. But tell me what that's like in an actual escape room. Well, I mean, when you're in there with randoms, and I guess I can start this off. When you're in there with the randoms, everybody's just really polite. And especially if they're all new, nobody really knows what's going to happen. And a lot of it is trying to work with the other people. So, so almost half your time is spent trying to work with the other people, trying to figure out what your boundaries are, trying to figure out, is it okay to solve this puzzle? A lot of it just seems to be social understanding before you can eat while you're trying to do the room. And that depends on the people. Some people will go ahead and just start solving things. Some people will sit back. Uh, some people are just confused and overwhelmed. Some people will alpha their way yeah. into the room yes. and then just yeah. take over. Yeah. Are, so it all, so it's it's just, it's, it's kind of chaotic because depending on the people there. Depending who you get. Depending on who you get, and that's mm-hmm. why they're randoms. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like the tasks, it, or like the, t- you know, your goals in an escape room with randoms are different from your goals in an escape room with, say, your already made team. It's in that your goal is is mainly to make the team and to figure each other out, as opposed to like getting through puzzles. The puzzles almost become secondary. secondary yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, how do you approach an escape room? with people you know but haven't done escape rooms with i think that depends if they're already enthusiasts if they are brand new people then we just solve it (laughs) (laughs) back in the day we were we were polite now now we just solve things (laughs) i think it depends on the ratio because when i bring my friends uh when i go with my friends who've never done escape rooms it's just me who's the enthusiast in there and if there's one enthusiast it's kind of funny I suddenly go into the leader role more and start to direct more and also just allow the and I back off from the puzzle solving actually just because they're um they're it's new for them it's exciting for them and I don't want to take that whereas when we go into a room and there's five enthusiasts and one newbie 
you know, Poor suddenly Ruby. will stop in the middle of the room. Oh, we should let them open the box, like, and mm. hand them, the, you know, <laughs> and or we we kind of just plow ahead anyway. So I think I feel like it depends on the ratios of experience. For sure. Um, I remember going to an escape room with a group of work friends because we wanted to do team building. Um, no, nobody you didn't. Else- <laughs> 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 nobody else has had any experience with an escape room or even like live ones or on a video game per se. And our manager at the time, she was a total alpha. She's always been an alpha. She's always been loud. And it was a split room. Hopefully she's not listening too. <laughs> that's okay. She, she knows she is. So that's okay. There are and very few loud alphas who don't know that about ourselves. <laughs> true, yeah. True. So she she was screaming at everyone on her side. It was a split room, so I was on the other side, happily locked up. <laughs> and all we could hear her is like, what is this? And F-bombs. And she starts saying, ask Ruby how to solve this. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not there. I, I can't help you. Ask for a clue. Call the walkie and ask for a clue. And they start asking me, Ruby, what are we supposed to do? Solve the puzzles. I'm like, I don't know what you're looking at. I can't help you. And it doesn't make me an expert in puzzles. I, I've just been through these experiences. I know how they flow and that's it. So yeah, that, that was pretty chaotic. Yeah, an interesting thing you brought up is split rooms. Like even if you go with a group that you know, uh, that you already have your kind of designated roles, sometimes you find that people split up and try to either take up leadership roles in their split groups or not. Uh, one example is the Casaloma room where uh, you're broken up into three groups and they ask for 16 people. And I remember for that particular room, we tried to get as many of the 16 as we could, but there was like six randoms that didn't actually show up. But that's another thing. So we, we tried to split up the team. So it was uh, of the 10 of us, there was like 40% of us, so four of us that were experienced, and then the other six that were mostly newbies. So we tried to split up the experienced with the newbies. And as Manpans was saying, uh, tried to the experienced ones would try to let the new ones try to go and solve the more task-based stuff, while the experienced ones would kind of oversee and try to catch those aha things but it was a big disaster in that case (laughs) (laughs) the other thing with with randoms like going back to the random i just thought about is that if randoms there's usually like little groups of people that all came together and they can also get i won't say cliquey but they will stick with Mm. the people that they know right they're gonna naturally gravitate to what's comfortable to what's comfortable so Mm -hmm. you'll get like maybe a group of three people working over there like friends that work together and stuff and so the difficulty is getting all of those tiny little factions to integrate together or share information or share information yes some people don't or just forget to share information (laughs) and then when we get to an experience group uh, then we usually find <laughs> that the team is more org- organic. We don't talk as much. We just go and do what we need to do. So we split off and do our individual tasks. So some people know, like, okay, I like focusing on one puzzle, and they'll go and start focusing on another uh, on a puzzle. I'm the type of person that wants to see all the puzzles just so that I can get an overview of things. And then what happens is that if I find something and then it's like, oh, look, this goes with that puzzle over there, I'll just bring it to them and just set it down. So it becomes more organic on how we solve things and almost not as much communication because we know each other and we know what we're all looking at. And then when we all get stuck on something, then we all start to pool knowledge. However, there are times where I think we just expect 
our group to understand us because we're so familiar with each other and we solve things and we leave it and we don't tell them it's solved. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't know who does that here though. You know, we, what was it? We walked into this room and, and we see, I see this like code Math on thing. the wall and it's I was like, like this looks done. Did they did they just put the answer there? Like, is that they, the answer? Is that the answer? Did anyone try it in a lock? I, I I'm trying in this locker. I was like, oh yeah, it I worked. did that. I just I didn't put in anything, and and but he I walked away. He didn't tell any of us <laughs> that. Uh, I'd, 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 failure in communication. Yeah, I'd like to interject here. Yeah. When I said Dr. Linda Carson, you know, I'm not that kind of psychologist, right? <laughs> This is the you more, do teach psychology. I do. Diva's therapy session. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. It is. It is interesting, though. Yeah, because then your goal with your experienced team becomes more about your performance, and we will sit there and we will talk afterwards about, you know, like, oh, I was, I felt off today, or you know, we'll because we already have our team. We're already, we already know our roles. It's like the Avengers. Yeah. Like in the first Going first the Avengers. Thing? No, the first <laughs> Avengers. They weren't a team, and they're all fighting and bickering amongst each other, and so they didn't really have a huge battle to get through because they they and they failed because they'd have died. They would have died, yeah. right? And then by the second and third, now they're a set team, and now they're yeah. trying to overcome. So when we, as an experience group, we no longer have to learn how to be a team. Now we can spend most of our, and all of our energy on actually solving the room, which is why I like playing on a team. Uh, an experienced team as opposed to trying to teach the newbies how to open up a directional lock. So here's, this is less of a lightning bolt thing, but here's a conventional thing that thing forming, storming, norming, performing and mourning. <laughs> That's five things. <laughs> That's five things. That's uh, a convention and talking about, managing and working with teams for describing the stages that a team often goes through. Now, it sounds lovely and linear, but I'll go through those stages again, mm -hmm. because forming is the early stages of forming a team. And it sounds like how you described when a bunch of randoms get together in a room, and everybody's really polite. Yes. And in the early stages of forming a team, everybody's really polite. Boundaries are carefully observed. Everybody probes conversationally to find out and establish norms norming as a team starts to work out for itself through through experience what how do we communicate what roles do we play with one another how do we organize ourselves how do we manage our time and our interactions it's the norming stage and you need that before you can be effective working collaboratively as a team there is often a storming stage in there where there's a lot, there's a lot of drama. <laughs> there's more could be said, but there's a lot of drama. And until you've both dealt with the drama and established those team norms, off, usually they're emergent. You don't mandate them. But if you are leading a team, if you are a manager, you may look for mechanisms to mandate certain kinds of norms for a team such as what the organizational culture is and supports. I sound so much like a prof. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but if you can get through storming and norming, 
you get to performing. You get to the stage where a team that has developed good norms and has gotten most of its initial angst out of the way can perform, can get things done. At the end of a project or when a team dissolves or moves on, there's a mourning or a journeying stage. Mourning rhymes better, but a journeying is a less mm-hmm. catastrophic description <laughs> of what it's about. Um, that essentially just happens, but it's useful to take advantage of that time. Don't let a team just poof, mm-hmm. dissolve without some kind of reflection, without some kind of capture. What are the learnings from this? What insights did we get out of this? What can we take away from this process before everybody goes their separate ways? So that's a pretty conventional working in teams description of the life cycle of teams. And you've described some of it here. The group of randoms is very much in that forming stage. Mm -hmm. As you get a group of people that you know, but they aren't all enthusiasts, they're just people who know one another, some of how you communicate and the norms for communicating are established. The norms for managing this kind of task Mm -hmm. aren't established. And your mother-in-law may not actually recognize, I don't know, a cryptogram Mm -hmm. when she sees one and know what to do with it. There will be some drama. But that whole team that you've got together who know what they're doing, as you say, there's sometimes not even a lot of communication about how to divide up tasks, because that's part of how the team normally interacts. That's, that's established. Communication about the outcomes of those tasks <laughs> is perhaps a thing still to work on. <laughs> <laughs> it is desirable. Yeah. No, it's funny when you're we are talking about escape rooms, but as you're talking, and obviously this would fit for any type of team aspect, I mm-hmm. think more towards all the events that we've run. Yes, because right. Because <laughs> it definitely fits there. Even Manpans was saying, morning is a very good word for the final because <laughs> Manpans was talking about uh, what, what the do you puzzle call, hunt. The puzzle hunt. But what do you, what do you call it at the end? Post-show depression. Post-show That's depression. It. It's, a yes. theater, it's a theater yes. thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And it happens after every, after every show we do. You know, yeah, we've spent all this time forming the team, getting over obstacles, performing like to the best of our ability, really getting a sense of each other and, and becoming a well-oiled machine. And then suddenly, three it's weeks done. later, the show's over and it's just done. And suddenly you're just... And it it is when it's an abrupt end like that. It, it feels like feels bad. <laughs> That's the only way I can say it. Yeah, at the at the very least, emotionally, it feels bad. Yeah, and there are things that you potentially lose that might have ongoing value. The relationships in the team are one of them. Mm-hmm. When I talk with people about working in teams, one of the things I talk about is buying used cars or new cars. Because when you're buying a new a new car, you're building a relationship with a dealership. And the dealerships know this. I have a used but from a dealership car now, and I've never had a car experience like it. They're nice to me. <laughs> they send me messages. They remind me when it's time for an oil change. They're building an ongoing relationship because they want me to buy my next car from them. Mm-hmm used car dealership, that negotiation can be a blood battle. And that's fine with the used car dealer and it's fine with you because you don't need the relationship, you need the deal. Mm -hmm. The dealership wants the relationship, not the deal. When you form a team and you build those relationships, if those relationships have value, the morning stage 
the day after the strike for that show. Mm -hmm. What do you do with those relationships? That becomes really important because if those relationships have value, you should be retaining them. You should be well, nurturing yeah, and, them. And one of the one of the things that they do in theater that I don't know, I don't know where else they did them. But after every project, there's a post mortem where you a week later, everybody after everyone's recovered, you get together and you talk about what worked, what didn't work, and sometimes sometimes you keep in contact with the people you've worked with. Sometimes you don't, depending on how badly it went. <laughs> <laughs> I I have friends who work at, at the festival in Stratford. Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to name any names about any of the following <laughs> thing, but the phrase is, not asked back. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. It's a repertory theater. Yeah. And they need everyone in that cast for the entire season. Yes. But everybody is on a new contract every year. Mm-hmm. And the way you know you were not a team player last year... <laughs> If you're not asked. Is if you're not asked back. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, a lot of amateur theater experience and some some semi-professional experience and never been in a situation where we did a post-mortem. So I'm hoping oh. that that's a, an exciting new 21st century thing. <laughs> and I want to applaud it. But I also want to say that's baked into agile project management. Yes. Mm-hmm. I recently was uh, certified for product owner. So I went through the Scrum project management um, courses and yeah so they do things called sprints which is short little anywhere from two weeks to a month um, runs so that they can do iterations of improvements to whatever it may be that you're working on and built into that cycle at the end of the sprint is always um, a reflection session that you have to have with the developers the product owners the scrum master should be there and you reflect on what worked and what didn't because their cycles happen right away. They don't stop. They don't have a break. There's no recovery time. You stop that after your sprint is done, you do this thing, and then you move on to your new sprint again. So it's it's a very quick turnaround, but they always have some sort of insight that they want to capture so that they can perform better for the next run. So it's built right into uh, the agile project management method that at the end of a project... For you in, in theater postmortem in Agile, I think a retrospective, am I right? Yes, Retros? retrospective, yep. Retrospectives are that piece of reflecting afterwards. I'm imagining, in my fantasy, my life as a novel, someday I, I go and actually get to do escape rooms with a cool team like this. <laughs> <laughs> afterwards, presumably you go out someplace that serves oh. hipster cocktails Dessert. and dimly no. lit no, no, desserts. Okay, but desserts. we do go out, yes, yeah. definitely. And you talk about how it went. And you talk about things that felt really great and triumphs and successes and batting your head against the wall and how you would redesign that room if you had a fighting chance. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or we just rant. Basically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're kind of past the uh, how we would redesign the room. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, that thing's beyond saving. No, no. We do think this is how you probably would fix this puzzle. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a retrospective. Yeah. That's a postmortem. And that's the adjourning or mourning stage of working in a team. First, I think, because emotionally, that feels better. Yeah. Uh, Man, is talking about at the end of a show, at the end of a really exciting, cathartic, challenging experience, there's a letdown and some kind of reflection feels better. Mm -hmm. But you're also preserving, to drag it back to my car analogy, you're, you're preserving 
the knowledge, the information, and especially the relationships. Mm-hmm. A set of a set of um, workplace pop up escape rooms that I had people build recently on an assignment. I saw an interesting thing happen that I hadn't seen happen on campus, and that was I had two teams, and they each built a room for the other team, and they actually had a little lag time to get this ready. Very excited. It was in their own space. So they knew the territory well. Many, many peculiar and interesting triumphant things happened. But one was that one of the teams invested some of their design time in figuring out how they would work as a team to solve the other room. Oh, nice. Which I hadn't seen happen before this. And I will be judging my future students on whether or not they have (laughs) the sense to say, not just we got to design a room, but we got to play a room. How are we going to do that? So this team did some homework, asked around, read around, talked to people who ran escape rooms and said, oh, there's a set of roles that people typically play on a team in an escape room. They divided those roles up. They had a plan. And then the other team had built a split room. Oh, no. And split the team up. (laughs) In ways that completely ruined their plan for how they were going to solve it. Wow. That leads to sort of a, another question I had about roles that people take on in a team, especially a team who has been together for a while and, and each have their defined roles. And do you find, like, how how successful are they with dealing with those roles when they're shaken up a bit, when they do something like get put into a split room or maybe somebody gets stuck with a puzzle they don't normally solve or something like that? I think I think you have to decide whether the team is looking for, for a growth experience mm. or not. All of the things we're talking about here apply to professional practice as well, right? Mm-hmm. And there are times on a project when a team just needs to get this done fast. When it's urgent, when it's high stakes, when you need the greatest chance of success, then you put people on the things that they are the most accomplished and effective at. But then there's a project where you want to invest in the team as well as the project. And that's time to give people a chance to try things outside their expertise. That's going to give you so many bonuses. First, it's going to give you professional development for the people on the team in a professional context. It's going to give you escape room (laughs) development for the people in the context we are allegedly talking about here. Mm -hmm. And people feel really validated and rewarded by professional or personal development. That's intrinsically motivating for people. And when you can get people doing things that are intrinsically motivating, they get better at it. They stick with it longer. They do a better job of this thing and then the next thing. So those growth opportunities are really powerful that way. But you're also building, there are kinds of team training that work like this. You're building a better knowledge of what the other people who typically do that thing. Let's just pick something. Give me a type of puzzle that someone might be really good at. Logic Logic. puzzle. Man pants. Okay. Logic puzzle. Um, And another type? Math. Math. Man pants. (laughs) Stop putting me in there. I I gotta I gotta test this out. Third type? No, oh, no, no. Third. What else does man pans like? No, 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 Ruby. What puzzles are Ruby good at? The ha puzzles the physical and stuff. stuff. Oh physical yeah, she stuff. can throw things. She's our she's our dexterity woman. Dexterity. Okay, dexterity, math, logic. 
So generally speaking, it's great if you could just go into a room and split up and say, this clearly involves throwing a thing at a thing, Ruby, go do your thing. But sooner or later, you're going to have situations where you need to collaborate more on things. And Amanda, having had a chance to do some throwing a thing at a thing puzzles, (laughs) problems, not only is intrinsically motivating personal development for you, Mm -hmm. you have a much improved idea now of what Ruby needs to do that kind of thing Mm -hmm. another time. When people know something about logic puzzles and they are out foraging in the rest of the room for other things, they're going to recognize key components. This really looks like it's something that needs to feed into a logic puzzle. Amanda, I've got a a set of letters and numbers here. Do you need that? And now you've leveled up the whole team by doing this cross-training in other roles. And this is this is typically done with high performance teams where there are specialized roles is to drop people into the other roles in training scenarios, not because you expect the anesthesiologist to suddenly become the surgeon, <laughs> but because you want the anesthesiologist to have a greatly improved understanding of what the surgeon needs, what the surgeon's lens is on the whole experience so that the team itself gets better at interacting. I have no short answers for anything. <laughs> oh, no, no, that was great. Yeah, oh, no, no, that's a great it's insight. Us think. I didn't think about it that way either. It's, it's fortunate, though, here, like when we do escape rooms, usually the tasks aren't so overtly complex that we have to, <laughs> that we need to like level our skills to an insane ability. But it is, it is true knowing knowing what the other people other person needs especially if you're the person that likes to if you're good at searching Mm -hmm. and trying to find what person needs what understanding what puzzle part goes with another which puzzle is really important when you're doing an escape room so here's the thing i i do with the class in working in teams on the very first night um, I divide them up into arbitrary teams there's a lot of early on just dividing them up into arbitrary teams and changing those teams up. But the first night, I give each of those teams a little kit of stuff and instructions. I'll go back to the stuff in a second. But I tell them they're not allowed to speak. (laughs) (laughs) And they have to accomplish three tasks. I give them a spool of thread and a needle. Hmm. I give them a pattern and a piece of origami paper. And I give them a jigsaw puzzle. They don't know something about that jigsaw puzzle yet, but I give them a kid's jigsaw puzzle. And as a team, they need to thread the needle, fold the origami pattern, and complete the jigsaw puzzle without talking to one another. And it becomes an elementary exercise and snapshot of people noticing things about the task and communicating it to other people and noticing things about their teammates. I really like a jigsaw puzzle for this because pretty much everybody has seen them and done them. And pretty much everybody knows some fundamental things you do at the beginning. You got to get all the pieces out. You got to turn them face up. You got to find the edges and the corners. But by that point, Pretty much everybody is over the whole jigsaw puzzle thing. And the people who really would like a nice, solitary, systematic, work your way through all the pieces, 
emerge. And you can see the teams where they notice that and they notice they finally found a thing for that stolid, going to work this till it's done member of their team. And they leave them and they support them. Oops, I found a piece that got dropped on the floor. Put that over here. There is no number of teammates that makes threading a needle any easier or faster. (laughs) There are some tasks that cannot be improved by throwing more people at it. And there are some tasks like folding an origami pattern from a pattern for which you need to have expert knowledge. So those things emerge in seven or eight minutes as a team of grown human beings try to work these different things out. I've seen some really ingenious solutions to this because all I say is don't talk. Sometimes they write notes. Sometimes they gesture and do things and move the puzzle pieces around and so on. But I've also, I'm, I'm mean. <laughs> I don't know if you've got this yet. Uh, I don't actually give them a pattern and a piece of origami paper. I give them a pattern that is printed on a square piece of paper that is origami paper essentially, but the whole pattern, their instructions are on the paper that they're folding, which means either you fold and unfold and read the next step and then fold and go further and then unfold and read the next step (laughs) or something. So do people figure out that they could take a picture of it on their phone? Do people figure out that they could look it up on the internet because I didn't invent the frog pattern. The frog (laughs) pattern is a thing that exists. Mm -hmm. How do they solve that problem and solve that problem wordlessly? But the jigsaw puzzle, there's a level of puzzle for like two to five-year-olds where they're actually, they're they're simple, simple puzzles, but there are three jigsaw puzzles in the same box. (laughs) I don't give them the box with a picture of the puzzle because I'm I'm mean, as previously established. (laughs) The backs of the puzzle have different pattern for each of those three puzzles. And if you are not the parent of a two to five-year-old child, you've never seen this before. And somebody will eventually figure it out. They'll notice that the backs of of the puzzle pieces have different patterns on them. And to watch them, this might be information. It's more important when they don't know what to do with that information than when they do. When they look at that and go, this is information, oh, they must be three different puzzles, then they just have to communicate. Direct people, these are different puzzles, start showing them how to sort them out. The interesting thing, I think, is when they've realized they've found information they don't know the significance of, now you've got to work with the team. Now you've got to share that information with the team somehow and hope somebody else can figure out what it means that this one has polka dots and this one has checkers on the back of it. Try that to build a new team because it's like an audition (laughs) for quickly forming a team. What happens when you do get alphas though? People that want to just take over. (laughs) The great thing about this is that it's happening simultaneously in four different corners of the classroom with four different teams. How many people, sorry, on each team? I'm running this in a classroom where, for my convenience, because I own four jigsaw puzzles like that, there are four teams and there will be however many people. But this course runs at about 28 to 35 people. So seven to eight people. And seven to eight people is pretty optimal for a team. Like, period. Escape rooms, whatever context. Any bigger than about a dozen people, the communication becomes orders of magnitude more complicated. Mm -hmm. You will fail. 
you get down to three or four people, it's a it's a real slog. You don't have the kinds of redundancy and and support that you need. So seven or eight people all wrestling over a piece of origami paper and a needle and thread and a jigsaw puzzle. They start to figure out and you start to see who plays well with others. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I asked about the alphas. You asked about the alphas. Yes. And what happens is that the team with the alphas loses. <laughs> Those alphas. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't doubt it at all. We've, we've seen it in escape rooms. Yeah. Yes. Because they want to take over, but they also don't want to be wrong, usually. Mm-hmm. And then they, they're the ones that'll be adamant, no, I'm going to solve this puzzle. Let me do this. And then they don't. It's actually funny because I remember um, one of my other work groups, they wanted to do an escape room because they just wanted to go out and they called a team building. Um, I wasn't able to join them and nobody in the room had done an escape room in the past. So I really, really, really wanted to be there just to see the dynamic and see what happened. And the feedback I got the next day, I just laughed because there there are certain people that are more more of an introvert during work or they they do like to talk but they don't like to take charge or they don't like to be responsible for things and one of my teammates came back to me and she said you know so-and-so she basically hulked out and like pushed everyone away and insisted she can solve a puzzle she even pushed away the manager and she's like no it's solved like this and everyone was telling her no you've been at that for five minutes i don't think that's right and she refused help and it gave them the biggest bottleneck because they couldn't proceed to the next room without solving that puzzle. And a lot of really poor feedback for that one person regarding just that room. And it really helps to identify what happens if someone intrinsically has an alpha in them and they just don't show it in polite terms at work. I'm going to, I'm going to remember to use the phrase hulked out because that's (laughs) going to be tremendously valuable to me next year. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that, allegedly team building experiences necessarily build teams, but they can certainly expose teams. Mm -hmm. They can inform you a lot. They can be diagnostic. (laughs) So an escape room then is more diagnostic. So what would be a building team like escape room? I mean, what would the goal, what would people hope for as a goal of doing an escape room if you really want to team build? Well, triumph. Triumph. Mm -hmm. Triumph. Um, a win is a lot a lot more validating than a terrible loss, but no. it's got to be a worthwhile win. They've got to feel like they earned it. Mm-hmm. I'm talking really here about the experience of it, mm-hmm. but it's got to give everybody a moment to shine, mm-hmm. everybody a chance to do something that they they actively that, contributed. So. We call that a hero moment. A hero moment. Yeah. Hulked out hero moment. Yeah. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> interdependence though mm-hmm. because everything i've just described works if you go grab eight randoms off the street and they happen to have yeah. a diverse set of skills and knowledge yeah. the interdependence where the only way that we got through that was together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the only way we managed that was by being humble enough to accept help by being clever enough to share information by being collectively tall enough to throw Ruby over the thing that needs... I've now taken Ruby throws things to Ruby being thrown. That's okay. That's happened before. Okay. Uh, Those interdependent pieces where if you don't have a human pyramid 
literally or metaphorically, it can't be done. That's the piece that makes it genuinely team building and not just uh, a fun night out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for escape rooms to come up with a, a truly team encouraging puzzle. Man, just just because it's it's hard to come up with something that would, and since you don't know the people, you don't know what skills they bring, and so a lot of escape rooms will do something like, okay, let's collectively find search through the books, or let's all let's have five people in five different areas press a button, and then mm-hmm. that's team building because you needed five of us. Nobody could have to pressed do it together, the, yeah. to do it together all at the same time. <laughs> there was this one. Was that where you got? Were we all in the same room where we all had to follow this pattern? Of button pressing on the ceiling. Oh, I hated that puzzle so much because the buttons didn't work very well. No, that was probably in Calgary then. You guys are looking at me funny. <laughs> okay, so that was that was with somebody else I did that with. Okay, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> or, but that's a common one. Or the ones where you have to like come across the room and hold hands together yeah, or to something and to touch hand. something or to reach something, that kind of thing. One of the, In the same category of it, this isn't really, but uh, one of the ones I saw in a group invent was to get a clue the group had to sing (laughs) and everybody on the group had to sing and they had to sing the whole song whatever the song was and and that was the only way that the clue robot would give them a clue yeah i think we've had to do that yeah oh yes yes i can think of a few we won't name escape rooms but yes yeah (laughs) so i didn't i didn't come in with with a plan for how to solve this, but it's clear that that's part of the conversation that we should have, you know, now we're at the next Swiss chalet meeting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, but one of the things that I think about it's everybody simultaneously pushing a button could be a a good team building thing. If the buttons are reliable and if figuring that out was rewarding and everybody had a hero moment getting to their button and somehow the communication was challenging enough how you coordinate that button pushing i think could have that effect but it's it sounds like you've got first hand experience going no that's not especially especially thrilling it depends it depends so as you said there is there there was a room where we had to figure out which button, buttons needed to be pressed first and we all had to do it uh, we all had to be in different areas of the room, and so that that was fine. But after a while, it becomes sometimes it becomes trial and error, and then it doesn't become as fun. But you know, it depends on the mood. From from the ones that I've seen being built, from the pop ups I've seen being built, one of the things that looked promising to me was uh, the idea of ordered tasks, uh, where it's not clear what the order is, mm. and working out not. We have to do all of these things simultaneously, but we have to do these things in some order that we have as yet to determine. I think gives room for people to individually accomplish things and communicate and collaboratively figure out and succeed at doing the things. Yes? No? Has that happened? Would a meta puzzle be an example of that? Uh, Errol, maybe. I love speak. the I love the word meta, so I'm hoping so. <laughs> Tell me what a meta puzzle is. So what usually happens in an escape room is that for every puzzle that you solve, you might get an aspect of the final puzzle, and then at the end, all those different pieces come together. And that's usually in an escape room. It's different when you have a puzzle hunt where the answer itself, when all put together, gives you the final answer. So similar, similar, similar in that way as well. 
that just you just get a piece of the final puzzle. So that's what a meta puzzle is. Usually you can have maybe even in an escape room, they might have little mini meta puzzles. And then finally, when you get to the end, all of it, one would hope, culminates into this final uh, final boss puzzle that you've collected all the pieces. It's like gathering the three keys to open the final door, whatever. Mm-hmm. But especially if they had a relationship and wasn't yes. just yeah. collect it, not. Well, to be fair, usually in an escape room, there's sometimes isn't a relationship. You just got a thing. But yeah. usually a well-designed escape room, there's a reason for finding that thing. You know, maybe you needed to get, for example, if it was your trying to solve a murder you need to get like three pieces of evidence and so you might solve this section and then all of a sudden you get one piece of evidence and then all together it will give you the final puzzle to solve who the murder is yeah or those three pieces of evidence will come together and then you have to look at uh profiles of suspects to f- to see which of these evidence fits which suspect the most i guess that that's one example and I'm having flashbacks. There's definitely a CSI computer game. Oh, I've played it. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's downstairs right now. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And it's somewhere between that and the Sherlock Holmes one that's in the binder where you're flipping things that is not oh, a computer game Oh, yes. At all. Sherlock Holmes Consulting that's Detective. That's one of our yes. favorites. We're working yes. through it. I love that game. Absolutely. It's the only game that I'll sit there and read yeah. uh, voraciously <laughs> because yeah. it's important to read things as opposed to an escape room where it's rarely important to read it. It's just important to skim it to see, oh, look, this is highlighted. Grab that word out. This, now that I think of it, um, I'm having a flashback to our conversation at Swiss Chalet. You, Manda, like the reading things <laughs> yes. uh, part. <laughs> and it sounds like there aren't a lot of escape rooms that, that build that. To me, it's a culture and atmosphere being locked into the scenario and not just decoration. The the, a successful one, yeah. Like reading in an escape room is a controversial topic because if it's it's a timed environment, right? Too long, and Nobody everybody really gets bored. Only that. one person benefits from it. People either phase you out. So it's like there's little short bursts of reading that I find nice that actually contribute to the room itself as well. If there's important things in there to pay attention to, are um, all escape rooms timed environments? Yes. yes. They can range between 40, the most popular 45 minutes and 60 minutes. So, is that a commercial constraint or do we think that's necessary to an escape room? It's a commercial commercial constraint. Commercial, yeah. They want to get people through. They want to make more money. We could could sit in there for two hours reading the backstories in there and stuff, but uh, no, they need to make money on their business. There are some that are trying to go longer, and a lot of people are wondering if longer is too tiring. And an enthusiast doesn't think it's too tiring. <laughs> it's not necessarily tiring. It's also commitment to be able to find that amount of time for a whole group of people to stay for two hours or more is, is a commitment that it's harder to pull than, say, 45 minutes and it gives you 15 minutes travel Especially time. Especially if they don't like it. <laughs> yes. If you don't like it and you're stuck in a room for two hours, it's a really long time. But to be fair, we were able to find people to dedicate their whole night to us. Well, actually, the whole evening. Our train event was three hours. Yes. So when we did our train event, we made people stay actually even longer than three well, hours. Well, there was the novelty of being on a train, and yes. a train ride is cool. <laughs> they also had a full dinner had meal. Dinner. I was going to so, say, yeah. food. I've, I've been to an, an art party on a train. This oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. steel rail session has run several times in the Kitchener-Waterloo region. It helps a lot that that's a licensed event. 
I think people's attention span is greatly improved by access to beverages. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> we learned that from our train of that. <laughs> Going back to the, the timed aspect, actually, because you kind of perked up at that. How mm-hmm. is team building affected when there's like a timer go- counting down that, uh, you know, that suddenly there's not the leisure of, of getting to know one each other and reading those social cues and suddenly you have to, your brain starts to prioritize things. And also, not everybody gets implements to write things down so usually a lot of things are done by memory sometimes they'll give you a little boogie board or maybe a pen and paper but they escape rooms don't normally like that because people like to destroy things and they'll just start writing everywhere and we're not even (laughs) joking they'll just start writing everywhere no yeah we found like books with the answers written on the inside so we're like oh cool so they don't little little gifts written what about putting in non-answers to to booby trap things for successive players no i don't think anybody no no only the owners will do that (laughs) (laughs) but definitely accidental where somebody was writing their puzzle process on a piece of paper and left it trying to work things out and it was the wrong direction (laughs) i think people are usually too focused on trying to solve it than trying to think of the some other group they don't know now it's different however we have been in rooms where you where it's like a uh team competition two teams against each other where there is a possibility to sabotage the other team, <laughs> then, yeah, then people will, to- I will, I'll totally sabotage the other team. It's like the first thing we go for. <laughs> it almost sounds like a role that you should have on the team is somebody <laughs> whose whole job is is just saboteur. Yeah, saboteur. <laughs> that might be me. Yes, yeah. that would be our role. <laughs> be your natural role anyway. <laughs> well, you were asking what, what a timed environment might do to team building. Uh, it's going to destroy team building. But what does it do to working in teams? This would be when you would switch intentionally or accidentally into people working in their most effective roles. This is not a time for you to experiment with the throwing things puzzles. This is a time to say we we have a crunch. Let's put everybody on the things where they have the highest chance of doing it. But it's also going to bring out the worst of in a lot of people because people are going to hulk out a lot on a on a time limit. Right. And I'm sure you've seen that happen. So you would say that um, having a time limit will destroy team building for the most part. Yeah. You would think, cool. <laughs> yeah. So now it becomes more of a team, as you were saying, uh, not really so much team building, but just... Diagnostic. Yes, yeah, there you go. Yes. It would be very diagnostic because you'd certainly see who takes over, who tries to rush, um, who... <laughs> I try to rush. <laughs> yes. Make mistakes more during... So almost like a team testing, not a team building. Yes. Your team hopefully was built before this and now we're going to test it in this timed environment. Now, if the timing, if the time constraint is a reasonable one, that is, it's reasonable for a team with this set of skills and experience to complete in this much time. You're not. That's not going going to be destructive pressure. Right. Mm. Oh no, I think escape rooms for new people Are is always, destructive yeah. pressure. It's always and for an experienced group. We don't worry about the time. So, not because, as I said before, it's just that we don't have to worry about the team building aspect, and we just know what we we all are good at, and so we just do it. So we don't really worry about the time aspect now. But if it's a brand new team, unless of course it's a really bad room, like I know that Mike and Ruby. Well, this is this oh, is what man. I was gonna this is what I was gonna build up to about that is because in a really bad experience, the time limit is your get out of jail free card. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 
thank it goodness is. that's over. Yes. Yeah. I know I have heard of people who said that after a while they were just so frustrated they just sat and waited in the room until it was over. And then you hope there's a lot of good reading, don't you? Oh yeah. <laughs> just sit in the corner. And then you if No, I think by then you're so frustrated that you don't even want to put any effort that would help make you think that the room could have been good. Do you, <laughs> does that make any sense? It's like, no, I'm not going to read that. We're stuck in this dumb room. I'm just going to sit and wait till it's over. I'm beginning to see where the people wanting to destroy things impulse might yes. come in yes. too. No, it's true. Once they get bored. I, I have oh, so many questions, so many questions. <laughs> uh, but your murder mystery scenario, find three pieces of evidence, read the case, uh, read the profiles and see what fits. How many escape rooms are there where there are multiple possible successful outcomes, multiple possible winning? Very little. Very yeah. few. Yeah. Very little. Either the choice at the end is arbitrary, you can choose one or the other, and it doesn't really matter, you're still going to win. That's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, it's not so much you're still going to win. There there might be have multiple endings for you to uh, experience. Yeah. So it's... It, it's the, any multiple choice we've seen, either the experience is a little bit different, which is kind of cool, or it's arbitrary, and it just doesn't matter. There was one room we did where we were given two sets of puzzles, and they're dependent on two choices. Like, you know, do we want to save this, or do you want to um, not save? And it was like, that's a really hard puzzle. Just go for that one. It, <laughs> for us, it didn't matter. It's like, I'm, I can't figure what that is. We had to pick out notes in this really long... A music box, and or so at are the you end, also more talking about like less narrative choices and also more like multiple ways to solve a puzzle? Like you can, I mean, it, unintentionally, different solutions <laughs> come out. For instance, we could like do all of the art, like crazy vague puzzle things to get this box open, or we could brute force the lock and just... So Mike will be sitting there spinning the tumblers while we actually try to solve the puzzle and whichever one of us <laughs> figures Gets it out first. first. Gets there first. <laughs> and, and that sounds like a, a workaround to get through a room. I'm just, I'm looking for... Well, I'm, in some ways I'm looking for replayability and I'm looking for a way to mm. justify that cultural atmospheric piece that you get from reading. Because yeah. if you built that murder mystery room right, where there were seven different pieces of evidence out there to get, but mm -hmm. any three is yeah. enough to align with one of the profiles, then whatever the first three are that you come up with, you go read the profiles there, great, you've solved it. But there's a whole other murder mystery available to you yeah. if, you saw, if you found three different pieces of evidence. The hard part about the replayability aspect, especially in a place that has the saturation of escape rooms, is do I want to play that room again or do I want to play another room that's mm -hmm. completely different? Mm -hmm. And for the most part, people will just choose a completely different room. You did touch on a subject that is another hot topic yes. in escape rooms. Everybody's trying for the replayable room. The, uh, the, yeah. the mm. reason that they're replayable right now is that you have, say, maybe a very task-based room that's based on points, and so people will play it again to get a better score. Mm. And like that's, that's the closest they've come, I think. Mm. But as far as like a narrative choice, or yeah, like a puz puzzles that you can solve that would lead to a different choice at the end, uh, no, that hasn't really happened much. And, and owners would love it if they could have some type of replayable room. Yeah. 
Now, it's interesting. I was talking to Christine of Looking Glass Adventures, and she was saying uh, because she caters more towards families, she finds that a lot of the kids, the children, just want to redo the room. If they go to a birthday party and it was amazing because they did a room, then they want it for their own birthday party. They don't even care if they've seen it. And then they'll go to another birthday party. So back in the day... It, it, a lot of sorry, it still is. A lot of the room is hush hush. Nobody wants to give away spoilers. Nobody wants to show pictures because you can only experience once. And she's just decided, yeah, it doesn't matter. All my clientele all knows my rooms, even if they've only you know it's people post pictures of it. People do all sorts of things. So for her, it's interesting because mm-hmm. she has a replayable room because the clientele doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to redo it over and over again. Where's the line between live action role playing? And escape rooms. Oh, it's actually quite fine. <laughs> it's a very fine line. Depending so, on the escape room you're playing. Really, a lot of people when they do our event is they just call it. So you're just doing LARPing for the mainstream, and it's like, yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> it's very much LARPing light. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. LARPing light, I like. <laughs> Hulking out. Wait, I, I, I've got my list now. I'm, I'm. As you say all of these things, trying to think of possibilities and and uh, the best ways to just throw them out into this group because you have the broader experiences of it. And the, the LARPing doesn't catch my attention as much as the replayability because it's the demographic finds it replayable. Instead of redesigning the room, you've redesigned the demographic. You've changed the expectation of what it's for. And I wanted to throw another piece in there because forbidding, uh, telling, keeping it all hush-hush, no photographs, et cetera, is really counter to what a lot of experiential service industries are doing these days. When museums and galleries even are building in selfie opportunities, when organizations and events are making themselves as Instagrammable as possible. What might an escape room design look like that is full of selfie opportunities? And how might you actually bake that into the escapiness of it? Oh, and one other other possible component is rather than having people playing specific roles adapting the content of the escape room to the individuals who come into it. What information can you get from uh, leaving aside concerns about personal privacy (laughs) for a moment? In fact, let's just go straight up to it. So ask everybody for their mother's maiden name, their date of birth, the last four digits of their social insurance number. Anyway, some set of things and tune the puzzles to the individuals instead of tuning the individuals to the puzzles so that so those are interesting aspects and other that has been done but maybe not to the extent that you're thinking so there are rooms that will i did a room i think it was in calgary and you were uh patients you were uh, insane you're you're at an insane asylum and, and you'll notice that when you take a look at all the folders they took the time to put your name on each of them so you, when you looked at through the patient's folders, it was you. And, and so that, and that's an interesting aspect, but it didn't really, you didn't tune the puzzle to it, right? So mm-hmm. it's not as, as let's go ahead and tune it. And the reason that people can't really alter the puzzles too much is because they may only have a 15 minute to five minute window to reset it for the next group. So one of our events, I thought it would be really cool because we had all the names 
before going into our events, I wanted to put everybody's profile into a into oh, yeah. a profile sheet so that yes. because that was part of the narrative. And in the end, I was like, no, this is way too much work. <laughs> and cost. we didn't have all the names. And we didn't have all the names. Because some people, people would just... register for the whole group. Yeah. And so even though like... we asked for all players' names, they would just put their names throughout everything. <laughs> and so yeah. that didn't work. You had another ask you were asking about, and I forgot what it was. Uh, before that question about tailoring it to a person. Instagram. Oh, Instagram. So some rooms do that. Some rooms actually are very open. It's like, yeah, come take as many pictures as you want yeah. in our room. We'll take your final photo. A very common thing is to take the final photo with a, a sign that says, oh, we got out, or oh, no, I'm with stupid, things like that. <laughs> and then they will share it on their, their own Instagram feed or they'll Facebook, give it to them. Twitter. And I usually find that if we follow their feed, we don't want to see a billion photos of other people. Mm-hmm. So we usually don't follow it. However, if they offer the photo easily with branding so that mm-hmm. we ourselves can share the photo, then it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So a lot of escape rooms will take that photo and then three weeks later make it available for you, but you've forgotten you've done it. <laughs> are they living in the same 21st century we are? No. So lately what escape rooms are doing now, and and I love it this way, is where they'll take the photo and then they'll say, okay, you want this emailed to you and also maybe also post it to your Twitter. It's like, yes, do it all now while you're at the while you're at the site. And then or you- they'll just ask you, can I have your phone that we can take your photo yes, with? Yes, yes, that too. Mm-hmm. And then, then you'll share it and it's great. Can you not gang up with Eventbrite? <laughs> I'm... So that the input for all of the ticket arranging, that information is where the capture of people's information is. And a social media manager who is funneling things back to people so that they can share it in whatever their favorite channels are. I'm, it just it feels like this next stage hasn't quite happened. There's many things in the escape room world that hasn't yet happened for the next stage yeah. and okay. because it is still just uh, an emergent business, even though it's now been, what, four years, three years? Mm. Mm-hmm. Four, I think. Four. Four years. Yeah. It's funny because when I talk about puzzles, a lot of the mistakes that people are making puzzle, the people are making in puzzle designs have been done and fixed via the adventure games Uh um, the adventure game Golden Age back in the 90s. We'll go into a room, we'll see all these puzzles, we'll see like, look, you're making the exact same mistakes that yeah. these adventure games have made years ago and you're you're treating it like it's brand new, that you've never, that this is like new territory we're coming on and we aren't. And it's, and, and it's hard to convince a, an escape room designer that it's new, that they shouldn't put red herrings in their escape rooms, for example. <laughs> And in going back to the platform of being able to share, there was actually a huge, wasn't there a whole thread about it where people were just escape owners discussing which platform to use for their registration, for their payment and whatnot. Everyone wanted their own. They wanted something different because they want to prevent things like their competitors booking on their site and things like that. And they obviously also don't want to pay for something that's more expensive. Um, For instance, we did use Eventbrite for our, for our events, oh, however, did we? cool. I yes. don't even know. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> totally ah, did. 
because I heard Eventbrite. Oh, I, I, just, yeah. I just Remember left it up to you. Remember I the app and we did yeah. the check-ins for everybody? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I left uh, it up to you because you knew what you were doing. That's, <laughs> that's what Errol does on a yes. team. <laughs> but once again, it, it depends on the players. If one person's booking and paying for everyone, they choose to ignore, even though it's just as hard to fill in their name five times, six times, versus filling in different names five times, six times, they will just choose to do their own information. So you don't have everyone necessarily due to that restriction. Well, when we when we all when we all go offline after after this conversation and start designing our dream escape room, I'd, I'd push back on that and say mm-hmm. if it adds value mm-hmm. to the experience, then your one good weekend of people going through the experience away from everybody knowing when they showed up, they got a little embroidered Madge badge, mm-hmm. and they were all named Madge because Madge signed them up. And wouldn't it have been great if they'd had this? this yeah. thing customized to them and you build it into your communication about it and everyone knows you're the place that does That's this premium it. experience mm-hmm. and nobody would ever sign someone else up in the, yes yeah. no that and that's that's uh that's a good that's probably a different topic the whole mm. part about the premium experience because a lot of escape room businesses i think aren't really looking for the premium experience but the most financially feasible experience not every not everyone but I, I mean i can understand that they have to they have to walk that fine balance between between being financially stable and and then being a premium innovated. experience yeah like because i understand that the events i run are not financially stable we try to go for <laughs> as premium as we possibly can and take drive, me with you <laughs> everybody into the ground um, pouring all of our effort into an experience, and and we have fun doing that. But we know that we can't. That's not that's not feasible from an energy or a financial um, standpoint. So that's why we only run them once. And here's what got me into this whole conversation in the first place. Here's why I put the call out on Twitter. Here's how we ended up connecting. I have the least feasible version of this in my head, but I <laughs> but I believe that this is an escape room. It's a teaching module. It's a learning module. I, for me, it comes out of a course that I teach on color theory called the Art, Science, and History of Color. And I've started to realize there's no particular order to teach the elements of this course in. And that the most authentic way that you check to see if anybody has learned something is to give them some kind of test of it, some skill testing question, normally disguised as an exam. <laughs> For do you get it about this aspect of how color works? For instance, do you get it about how um, circularly polarizing light is used to construct 3D movies in real 3D, the format we see most now? I can ask you that in an essay question on an exam, or I could put you in a room where part of solving the puzzle to get out of the room involves figuring out how to read an image using real 3d glasses when you wink at your here's a test for everybody next time you go to a 3d movie don't recycle the glasses take them home look in a mirror wink at yourself didn't Zoe steal some glasses? Yeah. <laughs> Zoe always steals glasses. Every time I look at her after go with 3d movie it's like what why are you still wearing it is this like a doctor who moment if you remember remembers that episode with Bill and the Star Girl. Okay. Oh it. yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't. So I will. I will have to backfill that later. 
Um, you're looking at at not the eye that's open. It's a very bizarre experience. Oh. And in if, other words, and if, you get the wrong eye winking back at you. So it totally of. is the Doctor Who thing. <laughs> <laughs> So try that out later to see what it is I mean. But if solving a puzzle to get out of an escape room depended on knowledge of circularly polarized light, that's an exam question. That's an escape room embodying an exam question. And I want to build the entire final exam for the color course as a series of modular escape rooms. Wow. Now, I don't think that that stops at the exam. You want me to make this completely impractical and and financially (laughs) unfeasible? What if the learning is embedded in the room as well? What if the teaching of the thing about circularly polarized light is part of what you're doing in the room, but now you can't get out of the room until you prove you know it? <laughs> like portal. But that is yes, a, it is a fun like portal. Because you, you, you put your hands onto it and you're actually physically learning and not just memorizing information and then regurgitating and then forgetting it a week later. I think what you could do is that you could make the final exam an escape room because you're 60 minutes or two hours, whatever it is, you're stuck in that one time. room. It's yeah. an exam. But if you want it for learning, what you could do, you could make the course itself a huge puzzle hunt. So then you remove the time aspect of it, yep. but now they have to do a lot of research to advance to the next level. And conveniently, there'd be this room where some of that research could be spoon-fed to them. It's true. For yeah, two and a half true. hours every that, Wednesday night. <laughs> to show up. <laughs> I have a tin. I didn't I didn't bring it, but metaphorically it is in your honor. I have a tin that is my my resolve to myself, my promise to myself to do this somehow, to do this escape room color course mm. thing somehow. Because I saw a tin of herring with a red logo on it. <laughs> And one of the things that we do in the color course is talk about color metaphors, color similes that are used in different languages, like a red herring is a color-based... Oh, that's true. cool. That is true. That would just, if, if I anybody would just put in your it course in a room. was an escape enthusiast, that would just mess with their head so much. Is it, is it part of the exam or is it? <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> and in terms of teaching and learning, that's fine. Yes. Because my mission is... They remember this. Mm-hmm. My whole job is to be memorable. Mm-hmm. And they'll never forget <laughs> yeah. the escape room with the red herring tin in it <laughs> and color similes from English, including what it means to say something is a red herring. It, to be honest, we never forget all the things we've got frustrated with. <laughs> <laughs> But you do learn from it. You do you, learn from yeah. it. Like, oh. You learn that it's wrong. <laughs> no, I think it's completely possible to do an exam like as yeah. an escape room, especially with the with the timed aspect to it. Like it you makes, know, colors it makes would be sense. is is I don't know. Maybe it's just in my head. It's an easy, but also a little bit hard. But it's almost it's easy to make a bunch of puzzles out of color. I mean, it's been done before. Not that it's been done before, but it's a very, it's colors used a lot in escape rooms. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of that. Just a color can be used for signaling what goes with what. A lot of color is used probably wrongly in that sometimes they'll put blue here and then you'll need blue for another puzzle, but it doesn't, it's not relating to that blue over there. So I usually find a lot of people sometimes make puzzles 
in like uh, like that they're they are in its own world and forgetting that there are puzzles around it and and uh it you everybody will be affected by those puzzles just like you know the library book thing oh i found a bookmark and However, i do see a lot that a lot with the student design oh, yeah. pop-ups yes because for most of them they've never seen an es- escape room or they've seen maybe one they they don't know that that's a trap and many of them fall yes. into it when i tell when i tell a person I, I when i tell people about escape room puzzle design i usually say hey, your puzzle will be too hard just from the very get-go, and two, your puzzle isn't in isolation. It will always be affected by everything around it. But uh, color puzzles, you know, even the more common one where you just have to look through a red filter to see something, uh, or where you have to make color pattern matches uh, to, you can maybe trace out all the blue, and then you'll see it makes a number. You know, a lot of people will do a number of different things for color, but if you have, we have seen stuff where you have to combine colors, uh, people do know uh, that you have to combine red, yellow, and, and green, yellow and blue. And, yeah, like, yeah, that just happened in the last Tomb Raider. <laughs> Go, right. there was a color oh, puzzle. Right. It was so there funny. Was we were watching there. in this action film. Wait, this is a color puzzle. <laughs> that was just <laughs> funny to hear. <laughs> it's like, are they in an escape room now? I think it's it's for me it's a personal pet peeve when they're trying to use color association or color in a puzzle where there's different pieces that you have to pull together and the purple isn't a purple. It might be like an indigo versus a purple. Oh, yeah. Or like it, a rubies. pink versus a peach. And it's like, those don't go together because yes. that's a pink and that's a peach and everyone's arguing with Ru- me. Ruby's knowledge of color actually works <laughs> against her because we can't. We can't, we don't have the pinpoint accuracy that she does with color. And so I'm like, this looks purplish. Well, I think the worst I hate is when they do our, um, the rainbow colors. Mm-hmm. And no. then they, and it's like, which one's indigo and which one's violet? I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe. <laughs> and then you compare it to another aspect of the room, but they don't use the exact colors. Exact, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, I think this indigo goes with that indigo, maybe. I don't know. And it just. That also and people would never do that with a math puzzle. No, no. no. <laughs> well, there's no Which... different shades of numbers, so numbers are exact. That's why I like numbers. They don't stay the same. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about one more escape room. This is entirely an abstract escape room, but in the final exam last year for Psych 306, I snuck a sort of an escape room. This is just, it's a conventional exam, like pieces of paper with questions on it. And this is a course in perception. Mm. So they have been learning about vision and hearing and and, uh, taste and touch and all of these things. And so partway through the exam, just after they've answered questions about, let me make sure I've got this in the right order. Yes, about about touch sensitivity, the question begins, you wake up in a completely darkened cargo hold of a truck. You know that somewhere in this room, on in this cargo hold, the code to the door lock is scratched into the floor. How do you go about finding it? There's no setup for this. I didn't tell any of them that this was coming, although they they did know that there were some some very open-ended essay-type questions coming later. But the answers to this were, generally speaking, I was expecting something around um, the fact that it's scratched into the floor 
but it's a completely darkened room. They're going to have to find it by touch and which parts of the body are more densely enervated, meaning more sensitive to very superficial tactile stimuli. Mm -hmm. Did I sound enough like a professor yet? (laughs) Densely (laughs) enervated. Yeah. (laughs) they They need to figure out can they apply the stuff that they've learned and rattled back to me like a parrot? Can they actually picture how it would be used in a obscure real world scenario? Mm-hmm. That is, you've got to feel the floor with your fingertips. It's not enough to just walk around with your feet. Yeah. In fact, ideally, you should lick the floor, but I was it's about a very to brave. Say that. <laughs> Ruby gets full points. Ruby gets full points. Because if you lick it, your tongue feels better, except oh. that you might die. Or, could you, or you can imagine all the splinters you'll get. <laughs> it's like, ow, ow. <laughs> so there were three of these questions. So a page or two later, there's another question. You've found the code, but now from searching around, you're disoriented. You know that the door is by a, a noisy air conditioner. Mm. And they've just answered some stuff about how we locate where sounds are in space. So the most common answers for this that I'm expecting are going to be about the different ways. If you change the orientation of your head, you uh, can get a better uh, localization Mm. of sound, for instance. But in that case, I wouldn't be surprised, wasn't surprised that a couple of people are actually doing responses about can they detect the change in temperature toward Mm. the air conditioner and find their find their way there. So there's this series of questions that are about, you learned a thing. Can you figure out what of all the things you know is useful in this scenario? Is 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 this leading up? Are you going to lock your students in a cargo hold <laughs> for next exam? Who's going to very- lick the ground? Who's going to lick it? <laughs> oh, this tastes like cherry. This doesn't. It doesn't taste like cherry at all. It tastes like feet. <laughs> And so now, and we're not going to do this, but now I want to build the room where the path out is which parts of the floor taste like feet. (laughs) (laughs) This is the way, this is the way. More feet taste here. (laughs) That's pretty consistent with your teaching style. You might have to reach out to the Jelly Jelly Belly Jelly Bean Company because they have yes. all those funny flavored jelly beans. We just found out yesterday. Oh no, I knew about it before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, well they did all the the Harry Potter, Harry Potter yeah. mm, jelly beans. Mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of people would like to base a puzzle on on the five senses, and some people have tried that, but just in a personal setting because you can't really get the public to start tasting things for you because it's because you have to worry about all sorts of health regulations but i always you know i did that to my work when i was making a puzzle hunt for them i did have base puzzles all on the five senses but and then i think i made them eat I don't even know if they ate the pezzas, but I did. I did have something about that. No, there's smell puzzles. There's uh, the tons problem. Of smell puzzles. Oh yeah. yes. There's a lot of smell puzzles, and the problem with smell puzzles is that your your nose starts to get confused, confused, and acclimatized, yeah. and then you're like, crap. Okay, I need to smell this one. Was it the vanilla, or was it the candy floss? Oh crap! I don't know. But if anymore. you were doing that on the final exam for Psych 306 in perception. The fact that after three or four things, your nose can no longer discriminate for a while is one of the pieces of information you should know. Mm -hmm. So now we have 
something where having a team has benefit. Yeah. And presumably you would split that task up oh. and say, we haven't used up Ruby's nose yet. <laughs> Ruby's going to do the next three. Yeah. And Ruby's got three sniffs in her. <laughs> yeah. So do you have an explanation of why coffee's the reset? I could work that out for you, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's because I, I mean, because I recently learned. Did we talk about this in the podcast? Uh, I don't think we no. talked about it in the podcast, but we did talk about it. I thought it was on the podcast. Like, coffee's the reset. So, if somebody was asking why somebody wanted a coffee scented candle, I said, no, you won't find them. One, why? Because that's what they use to reset the testers of their noses while they're smelling things. It's coffee. So, you'll never find a coffee scented. Uh, thing because of that that's very strange yeah Yeah. i don't know why that's what i've heard but i do know like coffee grounds is good for getting rid of smells oh well i use it and i I know a lot of coffee places the local ones they put it into a jar after they have all the grounds and then they get rid of all those scents and smells like the the not so pleasant so you can place it like in the bathroom yes exactly and it really does help do that (laughs) (laughs) people usually write a candle but you know why not just just put coffee in it resets in there. your nose and then you just smell all the bad things all over again. It's a horrible It's a constant maybe. cycle. That's true. I guess so. You're right. <laughs> I don't I don't know I don't know firsthand that coffee is a reset, but I could believe it. The nose is a very amazing, strange, mysterious thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's way shorter. That's way shorter anything. than the whole lecture that I have to do on that. So <laughs> Any other, or is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or bring up? Because I guess we're getting close to two hours. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Look, even Mike oh, wow. and Ruby didn't notice it was two hours. So that means they were interested. This is good. Hey, what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> Usually when Mike's bored, he's just going on the back or whatever. What? <laughs> and it's like, oh, aren't we ending already? That's when I'm talking. So we're good. I'm. Almost unrelated to this is what the last question on that exam was. Mm. And it's related to this only in that it's the last question on the exam. And that's where all the people wrote their little comments going, did we ever get out of the truck? (laughs) (laughs) But the last question on that exam, like all my exams, goes like this. So far, this exam is out of 100 marks. How many do you estimate that you've earned? Whoa. Wow. Wow. If you're within plus or minus five, I will give you a 3% bonus on the exam. Whoa. Whoa, that's hard. Whoa. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. That's the metacognition bonus. Oh, I would never know. (laughs) Or maybe I would just try to make sure that, you know, it's like I know all these answers and I just won't answer any of these other ones. I've seen it done. So (laughs) there are some people who, if you get 30 on an exam, out of 100, you pretty much know what you got on the exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they often earn the metacognition bonus, the people who really tanked. <laughs> oh, no. Get the consolation prize. So, uh, so since you've explained this exam, are you hoping that your students aren't listening? And then they're like, oh, I know exactly what's on this exam now. I'd be delighted if they thought they knew exactly what was on the exam. <laughs> I don't reuse my exams. Oh, okay, okay. Good, so good, these good. are passed. Where's the fun in that? Yeah, no, that's true. Well, I no, I do. I the metacognition bonus the, for real is on every exam that I that I write, wow. and it throws people for a loop if they see it without having been prepared. So I tell them that mm-hmm. first day of class, I say the last question on the exam is going to be, 
the metacognition bonus. Wow, that's crazy. You definitely were not my professor in... <laughs> it's my job to be memorable. <laughs> did we come up with like, you know, the perfect team building puzzle? We did not. We no. Did not. <laughs> but I think I think this information is good because for all that escape rooms talk about team building, mm-hmm. I don't think we know a lot about like the psychology behind it. We don't know like you know, we don't have a lot of experience with it. And the time just destroys team building anyway. There you yeah. go. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, really So they're all liars. <laughs> I think it could be some very useful information for for people to have. So thank you so much for exp- and I'm sure we could go on for another like three hours just mm-hmm. you know going deep into the psychology. Behind what those it. of you who are listening now don't know is that we did go on for another three hours <laughs> after we turned Great. the mics off. <laughs> but if um, yeah, so sorry, I'm going to start that again. <laughs> Grapes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Read my nonverbal cues, Errol. There we go. It's not very good. Yeah, time. I think he just willfully ignores. Amanda, if I could make a suggestion, verbal. hand something soft to Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> And see if she can hit a target. Although, actually, now that you said that, you could always just hand something soft to me, and then I'll get distracted. Yeah, that's true. But then you'll make noise. See? (laughs) They poked my hand on my voodoo doll. Anyway, thank you so much, Linda, for joining us this week and for making the trip out. That's that was very much appreciated. Yes, definitely. You're, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. I, I couldn't ask for a better way to find out even more about escape rooms. Yes. My future students, thank you. <laughs> Probably. Uh, is there anywhere that people can find you if if they if you want to give out that kind of information? Absolutely, L C Carson, L C C A R S O N. That's me on Twitter. That's me at the University of Waterloo. That's me on Gmail. I am old. That's me everywhere. (laughs) Fantastic. And I'm sure that you'll probably get bombarded with emails. All the the owners. Yeah. All right. Shall I talk us out? Yeah. Okay. Oh, boy. Room Escape Divas is brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other fun podcasts just like this one. You can also find us on Gmail, roomescapedivas at gmail.com. We love getting emails. Go to our Facebook page and click on the like button. And if you want to find us on Twitter, you can use the hashtag REDivas. I'm sure we check it from time to time. Stop sniffing. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye-bye! We usually try to make man pans crack every time she does this. That was awful! That was awful! That was terrible! You got a new random in the room. Everybody's checking out boundaries and on their best behavior.